If you would take your Bibles and turn to Romans 15. We began studying the book of Romans in January. I said it would be about a year. I think next week we'll conclude the book of Romans. That's pretty close. We are considering passage by passage what the book of Romans says to us. And really what we're studying is that God who revealed Himself to this church in Rome through the Apostle Paul, reveals Himself to us through the same words. That God hasn't changed. And that people haven't changed really. Some of the circumstances may have, but the human heart is the same. That apart from Jesus, we are captives to sin. That we are guilty before God and under His condemnation. That we are slaves to sin and unable to free ourselves, and that we are shamed by sin and therefore outcast. But God intends to clothe us with righteousness, to cover us with what Christ has accomplished that we might be acceptable to God, that we would be forgiven of our sins and received by God, that we would be empowered by the Spirit of God that we could break the power of sin in our lives, and that we would... Uh, be accepted by God and brought into His favor and relationship that, that our shame would be washed away. And as we consider how God has brought that to pass, that He has been at work redeeming us, that from the first sin, when Adam and Eve transgressed against God, God showed up and, and among His very first words of curse were also a promise. A promise that He would undo the sin and rebellion that they started. And we read in in the book of Genesis that on the seventh day of God's creation, God rested. God rested from His creation on the seventh day. He has never stopped resting in His work of redemption since the first sin. He is at work. And knowing that He is at work, bringing that righteousness to bear in our lives through faith, knowing He's at work, bringing redemption to us, how ought we to respond? That's what the Scriptures tell us today. In Romans 15, Uh, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. Before we do, let's pray. Father, would you bless the reading and study of your word? Would you nourish your people? Would you give them your words and hide them in our hearts that we might be transformed? We are desperate for your word. And we need it. Our souls feed upon every word from your mouth. Would you bless your people? Would you send your spirit? Would you work in us? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 15, verse 14. This is God's Word. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, or sorry, Il- Il- I can't say that. You'll just have to read it yourself. I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I have 
I make it my ambition to preach the Gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see, and those who never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings. They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is God's Word. It is completely true and it is utterly trustworthy. In Sadad, Syria, recently, uh, there is a historic Christian community there. Uh, Syriac Christians. Uh, it's been there for basically as long as the New Testament's been around. It was such a small enclave, but it was genuinely a pretty safe place, even in the midst of all the turmoil in Syria, such that when the Muslim extremists that are trying to overthrow the government uh, were not just overthrowing the government, but also attacking Christians. 600 Syrian Christian families fled their homes to this little town of Sadad. And there they gathered and found hospitality among the Christians who were there and some measure of safety. That is, until uh, just a little over a month ago when the uh, extreme jihadist rebellion entered that city and uh, began to promote violence there. Forty-five Christians were murdered, uh, some of them tortured, buried in mass graves. Uh, Many more were injured and wounded. Ten are still missing. Uh, All the churches in the region were damaged in some way or another. Every family experienced some form of robbery at the hands uh, of these rebels. And all of that went on for a while until the government forces, which are probably no less evil, came in and and pushed them out of the town, in which case the extremists used the local Christians as human shields. It was a terrible massacre. In a town nearby where the rebels had come once, they were threatening Christians, saying, "If, if you don't convert to Islam, you're going to die. One of those Christians' last words before he was beheaded. I am a Christian, and if you want to kill me for this, I do not object to you. That's the relationship of the extreme Islam and the Christians in Syria. But the suffering that's fallen on Syria that was in the news all summer and 
for which it seems we've lost our appetite to hear it because it's not reported much anymore, uh, has led to over 100,000 people dying, and that was both Christians and Muslims. Two million of uh, of people, or more than two million people in Syria have fled their homes seeking refuge mostly in neighboring countries. And when they get to these places seeking refuge, they find that the only assistance they're being given are from outsiders, and many of those are Christians. So here are these fleeing Muslims, brothers to those who are persecuting the Christians, and when they get to the place where they need help, their best help's coming from Christians. Uh, These Muslims used to call the Christians infidels. Now in their refugee camps, the ones who bring them water and food and medical supplies and conversation where they talk to them about Jesus, they've grown to calling them with affection the Bible people. Here's what one Christian in these refugee camps said. When you hear about one Muslim coming to Christ, it's a great thing and everybody rejoices. Today in Syria, I'm not talking about one person. We're talking about hundreds, even thousands of Muslims coming to know Christ. In the midst of all that turmoil and suffering, there are those who have been blinded, who are seeing the blinders come off, who are coming to know Jesus. There's a, a Christian worker in Syria who spoke to um, Voice of the Martyrs. Here's what he said. God is doing miracles inside the country. But even if he allows us to die, it will be an honor for us to die for his name, to glorify his name. As you hear that story, I want you to hear God's really at work in this country that is just being ripped apart. He is at work broadly in the country and he's at work in the particular Christians. After all, it is a great work of God for someone to say, if you wish to kill me for being a Christian, I don't object. It is a great work of God for someone to say, I I want to see the miracle of God go on in this country, but if I am to die for His name, I get to glorify God. That's God's work. God is at work. And, you know, the thought we often have with this, this abstract theological idea, God is at work. He is at work in all the world, and it's, It's sort of abstract, and and what I want to do is say, well, how do we take this abstract theology and bring it to bear on our own hearts? How are we supposed to respond to this truth, God is at work? Is God only at work in Syria? Is God at work all across the world? I want you to see how Paul responds to this knowledge that God is at work. I want you to see three, perhaps counterintuitive, responses. First, I want you to see how Paul sees his relationship to God's work in his own. Look in verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work. Paul did not think that he was going to be passive, that God was at work and he would sit by and watch it happen and that he would be carried along like on a a lazy river. He said, I have to work hard. The language that he's used in, in, in the verses just before it, he said that he was a minister in priestly service offering uh, things. He, he talked about 
this work that was ongoing, and it was a labor for him. But hear how he connects it to God's work. Verse 18, I will not venture to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. Or in verse 19, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. Paul says there's this this signs and wonders, this power of the Spirit of God that's coming to bear in the world. And God is accomplishing things through me, but I'm not passive. I'm at work. And, And so we might think this, if God is at work, I just want to sit back and watch it happen. I just don't want to get in the way. I want to let go and and let God take care of this. But that isn't the biblical response at all. The biblical response is, knowing that God is at work, it should subdue passivity and make us active. It should energize us. Paul says, I know God is at work in me, therefore I'm going to go work harder. I'm going to labor. I'm going to work. In fact, if you read what he said, it almost sounds a, a tad arrogant. In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. I've got to tell you, uh, I've never thought to say those words. I'm really proud of my preaching for God. I'm really proud of, of you know, how we're doing things. But yet Paul says that. Paul sees his work as the thing which God is using to expand his church, to make his name great. Paul is saying, I see God doing what he promised he would do. That's why he ends this little section about how he's at work and how he's preaching and how he sees the work in Rome happening with a quote from the Old Testament in verse 21. Those who have been told of him will uh, never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul says God made a promise. He made a promise that he would establish his kingdom in all the earth. That he would undo the rebellion of man and of that serpent from the Garden of Eden. He made a promise that he would turn back the Assyrians from Judah. And he would do the same thing in all the earth. He would turn back evil and rebellion as we read in the call to worship. Our hope is that God has declared His intentions. That which I have purposed, I will do. And God has said, I'm going to undo and overcome sin. I'm going to declare victory over sin and death. I'm going to give grace to all who trust in me. Who's going to stop his hand from doing it? God is at work. And Paul's response is that we join in that work. I'm going to work hard to see this proclamation of God's victory go to all the earth and to see it happen. I'm going to work hard with you, Roman church, to make this happen. And he says, I see the work of God in you. What would it look like for God's work to be Evident in a church. It tells you in verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. Here's the first sign that God is at work in your life. You are beginning to see godly character grow and grow and grow in you. Do you have a growing heart to love your neighbor? Do you have a deeper desire to 
now than you had a few years ago to be faithful, uh, to be committed to God, to being generous with your things? Do you find the character of Christ being formed in you? That's God at work. The second thing he says, you're full of goodness and filled with all knowledge. Do you find yourself wanting to know more and more about what God is like? Do you find yourself wanting to deepen your knowledge of the Christian doctrine and faith? Do you want to know what God has revealed? Do you find the Scriptures to be appealing? That is God at work. This next one is bold. It's not just that you're full of goodness and filled with knowledge, but you're able to instruct one another. When God is at work in the church, the result is that you and I, we become able to encourage one another in the faith. If there's ministry happening, not just from the officers of the church to the church, but among everyone in the church. That that God's vision for His church and His work is that it would happen through you to each other. I, I said this last week. If you want to think about sort of the public ministry of the church, those things that happen that are in the bulletin, those things that get put on the schedule, on the calendar, on the website, you should think of those as the tip of the iceberg. That's the stuff that's visible But the 90% of ministry of the gospel happens on stuff that never gets scheduled. It happens in private conversations and people rubbing shoulders, instructing one another. Now, there's a few of you who are like, I've been wanting to tell some people what to do. I just needed the opportunity. Thanks for letting me know. But remember, the issue here is that we're not instructing one another in, you know, how to do stuff. We're encouraging one another in faith, in Jesus, in repentance. We're encouraging each other to deny ourselves and take up a cross and follow Jesus. That we have drunk so deeply from the gospel of Jesus that His words have become a part of ours. I want to tell you a little event where that happens in the gospels. There's a scene where Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if somebody sins against us, should we forgive them seven times? Now when he said seven times, Jesus is going to go on and correct him and say, no, 70 times seven. Seven's not enough. But you need to know that the going right to the day, a number of the rabbi teachers had said, if, you, if somebody sins against you, forgive them once, and then if they sin again, you're, you're, you're satisfied. They've done their thing. You've done yours. It's over. The more generous, the liberals, said, you should forgive somebody three times. So Peter here is thinking, we've heard it said to us over and over since our youth, forgive someone once or forgive them three times if you're really generous. I'm getting from you, Jesus, that there's a great deal more generosity that we're supposed to be. So I'm going to be bigger than everybody else. I'm going to say seven times. I want you to see that Peter was actually sort of getting it. He was sort of getting it. Jesus went on to say it's more than that. But what I want you to see is that he was drinking from the teaching of Jesus. He was being more gracious and more forgiving 
than his culture sat around him. And I want you to do the same. I want you to have drunk so deeply from Jesus that you've become more generous than the culture around you. That you've become more holy than the culture around you. That you're progressing in goodness and knowledge. So that when you speak, you encourage people to deal with their life not with self-help strategies, but with faith in Jesus. With repentance from their sins. When you do that, God is at work. Now, you might say, I don't know how to do that. Let me say a couple things about that. If you don't know how, you need to talk to me. And we'll talk about how. I'd be happy to help you figure this out. If you want to find a way to encourage people in faith and repentance, if you want to be a part of that ministry and you say, I don't know how to do it, your first call Monday morning ought to be this office. And we'll talk about it. Second thing, in a lot of ways, having the right strategies isn't the most important thing. Paul says, in Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud for my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. He has this humble confidence. Now, I know, in some ways, how to be confident. Confidence because I, I like to think I can handle it. But how do you do humble and confident? I know arrogant confidence pretty easy. And occasionally I'll stumble on humility, but that's because something went wrong. Not because I did it right. How do you do humble confidence? Paul does humble confidence because he says, I am really at work, but God is the one doing it through me. I can be confident because I know God is doing what He wants to do through me. And I can be humble because I know He's the one empowering it. It's not my accomplishments. It's not my achievements. I have very often said that when a church has trouble, that the pastor frequently gets too much blame. And when a church grows, the pastor always gets too much credit. Because God is the one at work. God is at work in these churches. And so we want to work with Him. The second thing that we want to see is that we partner. We develop interdependence. Verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I've enjoyed your presence, your company for a while. Do you hear what Paul's vision is? I'm going to Spain because no one's been there yet. I want to go establish a church in Spain, but you're along the way, so I'm going to stop. And when I stop, I'm going to enjoy you, and I'm going to depend on you. I'm going to expect you to help me make it to Spain. Paul was admitting his dependence on the Roman church a church he had never seen or been to. He expected them to see the vision that Paul had for the gospel ministry and to be on board. And he said, before I get there, I want you to know what I'm doing. I'm going to Jerusalem because the church there is in poverty. And the reason I'm going to Jerusalem, and, and the fact is Paul knew that when he got to Jerusalem, the, Jew, the Jews were a huge threat. That there was a really significant chance 
when he got there, he was going to get arrested or beaten or perhaps even killed. He knew what he was getting into. And yet he was going anyway because he had in his saddlebags money that churches from Western Asia uh, had given to go to Jerusalem. These churches, they had probably never met anybody who was a member of the Jerusalem church. Probably never would get to meet one of them until heaven. And yet they gave their money to see the church be rescued from a temporary suffering. Do you understand? They said, these are our brothers. And we're connected to them. We depend on them because they gave us this gospel. So we're going to share in our material blessings. We're connected. I want you to think, because God is at work, you are not this isolated group in which our chief concern ought to be the welfare of our church. Our chief concern ought to be the welfare of the Holy Catholic Church. That as the church goes worldwide, so goes it for us. In very practical ways, this means we want to spend our money not just on First Presbyterian Church, but on missions and church planting and other ministries that are faithful to the Lord Jesus. That we want to think about how, let's just be candid, how some of you might ought to go and support some of these ministries, not just with your finances, but with your bodies. That some of you might be called to something bigger than this. And that if we lose from our church people who say, you know what, maybe that's me, and, and we lose leaders and gifted people that we're losing them to the greater cause that we serve. We have to see ourselves connected to the church in the region such that we are praying and, and, and committed to them. When I was doing college ministry, I would very often go and talk to, to groups of churches. And I would tell them about our ministry and, and want them to help make the, the RUF ministry possible through financial support. And they would say, well, you know, most of the college students end up going to the church across town. Um, why don't you go talk to them? Basically they said, unless we begin to see some benefit from the students, we're not going to give benefits to this ministry. And I want you to think that's just sort of a, a selfish, narrow vision that doesn't see that God is at work across the world. On the other hand, in Jackson, they had uh, a church planner and a plan to, to start a church a, few, a couple years ago. And they were starting a church about a mile and a half up the road from an existing church. And the church planner was real nervous about that. He said, look, I, I don't want to create bad blood. The pastor of the church there said, listen, if you planted a church across the street from us, you'd probably get different people. We're on the same team. That's the vision that Paul has. It's that, East, that Western Asia was connected to Jerusalem, and, which was connected to Rome, which was connected to the Spain church that didn't exist yet. I want you to have this magnificent, glorious vision so that when you hear the story of the church in Syria, your heart breaks, though you've never met them. And when you hear about the, the church that's hidden but growing and flourishing in China, your heart sings, though you've never met them. Because we're connected by God being at work. The last thing 
that Paul suggests. Verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Now this is the one that seems most counterintuitive. If God is at work, if God's doing His thing, if, I, if He says, I, as I have purposed it, so I will accomplish it. As I've planned it, I'm going to do it. If God's planned it, He's going to do it. Why pray? But Paul, on the other hand, thinks, if God's at work, all the more reason to pray. God has given me these resources to get to Jerusalem. He's given me this vision to get to Spain. And I think that's where we're going. So I need you to pray that I can do it. Pray that when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be spared trouble from the Jews, spared uh, from the unbelievers, that I can escape and get to you, that we would know peace from our God. God is at work, so things are being accomplished. But Paul says that ought to make you bolder in prayer. I see God at work. If, if He's doing these things, I'm going to pray that He do them among us. If I see God saying, I'm going, to, I'm going to make people who've never heard of me understand, I want to pray that God will do that here. If God says, as we read in the Scriptures, those who have never heard will understand, I want that to happen here. If God is causing people in Syria to be so devoted to Him that they say, I don't mind dying for Jesus. I want that to happen here so that I can lay my life down because God's at work in us in the same way He is in Syria. You see, if you see God at work, it ought to make you energized to then work in this ministry first to each other, but then more broadly into this bigger church of which you're a part, and then to pray. God, you sent your spirit and I see it happening. I'm going to ask you to keep doing it and let me see it. Let me see it so that my heart gets filled with your vision for the world. So that I can begin to see that you're at work everywhere and begin to recognize it in my own heart, in my family, in my neighborhood. I want to be set on fire by what you're doing. I've got this little thought experiment I want you to do with me. And... If you're into sports, it will work fine. If you're not into sports, think about maybe a card game. You're in a competition. And somehow, whether it's because of a time machine or something crazy, you know you're going to win. You absolutely know. There's no way to vary it. You know your team, your uh, partner, you, you're going to win in what you're doing. But suddenly you find yourself very early on in this competition way behind. Many, many points. And things look like they're going terrible. Do you give up? No. You see, but I know it's going to turn out. It's just going to be great. Uh, this coming week I'll be up with my family and we will play Trivial Pursuit and I will be behind. But I have this hope. I have this hope that the great moment of the comeback and to stand triumphantly before my family. Okay, that's that pride, arrogant thing coming again. But if you were in that scenario and you knew you would win, wouldn't you take great joy in continuing on? Think about Paul, who many times was in prison, and yet kept being faithful and working. Think about these Syrian Christians, 
who continue to bear their faith to God in the midst of almost unimaginable hardship. Consider these first disciples when Jesus had just ascended and there were essentially 11 church staff and the whole world to evangelize. And hear them pray. Well, God, you're at work and this is your plan. And so we're going to jump in with both feet. And I want you to look and see what God has done and believe Him to do more. More in us and through us and in the world so that we pray and work and then partner together. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, we pray that You would give us a vision for Your Kingdom that is growing and expanding and is magnificent and good. And that your work would lead us to labor and effort for one another's sake. That we would depend on one another and on this broader church. See our welfare connected to each other. And then lastly, that you would make us faithful in prayer. As you have chosen to use the prayers of the saints as one of the ways in which you would advance your kingdom. So we pray, would you do your work first in us, and then through us to everyone who comes into contact with this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.